found out that that's also the name of a electric light orchestra song. Oh, I bet it's. It's not not just the Kylie Minogue thing. No, which then made me, because he brings up ELO in hypernormalization as Assad's favorite band. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so then makes me question. Were you, suge- were you suggesting, Matt, that he's an Assadist? Is that the is that the latest like? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. You know. First, like Trotskyite, then uh, living Marxism affiliate, now Assadist, then uh, Nazbol. I've heard that too. <laughs> I like that. Um, he talks about Lady in Red. How the that jihadist likes Lady in Red. That's amazing. I love it. Lady in Red is my one of my. As I, I was telling you, Matt, I had a fond childhood memory of learning English, listening to Lady in Red. <laughs> Didn't um, think I'd have an ISIS association for that, or an Al Qaeda association for that song. But. Why, why, why do they like Lady in Red? I, I think I missed the guy that. Zabada Zabadia. I think his name was Abu um, Zubaydah. Zubaida. Zubaida. Yeah. yeah, he uh, before he became a Terry. He was in Saudi Arabia. He tried to quench the existential pain in his heart through music, and especially the song Lady in Red. It was like his favorite song. Yeah. Chris DeBug. Great, great music. Yeah, man. I guess. <laughs> Maybe not the best musical choice of the whole uh, thing, but that's fine. So, why did he bring man. that up? That's- what, what's the significance of that detail? I think the significance is that Zabeda wasn't like a born terrorist, that in fact he was like a bored uh, middle-class kid uh, okay. who could have gone either which way on the whole thing and then uh, okay. ended up getting wrapped up. Yeah, yeah I was really like sympathetic to him. Curtis like humanizes Assad and Zubaida by <laughs> relating them to Western pop music. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. They're not monsters. Yeah. <laughs> How could someone listen to the ELO and, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. commit mass genocide? <laughs> so. Oh, have we started? We tricked you. We started already. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, start. We've started. <laughs> We're podcasting. That's how it works here at the Antifada. Um, yeah. But I guess uh, I'll do a little intro now because why not? Gotta tell the people what's up so hello and welcome to the antifada where unrest is best with an asterisk because we've complicated that tagline quite a bit thanks a lot guys thanks a lot everyone sure, um, no problem uh, but we are here with uh matt and amog from woodbine space which is a radical community center in ridgewood queens and we are doing a very special crossover episode today on the new adam curtis series because uh you know every everyone's got a podcast now and this radical community space is no exception so um they're gonna they're gonna put it out in their feed right and we're gonna put it out in ours and uh yeah everyone will have a good time classic welcome, guys classic pod yeah. crossover welcome yeah thanks for having us so yeah we're fine. We, we were told recently by the experts at the antifada that we should call it the Woodcast. So, so the Woodcast is a result from uh, did, 11 did... months of hibernation from doing any kind of cultural programming during the <laughs> pandemic, which uh, Adam Curtis, you know, pulled us out of, you know, because we, we heard he was doing this new series. And, you know, like Tiger King and The Last Dance, we knew that we were going to be binge watching it. And we thought it would be a good occasion to think and talk about 
all of the themes and questions that comes up typically in Adam Curtis, you know, now 11 months into the pandemic. And, you know, we're happy to combo with the Antifada uh, friends here. I'm hyped to be uh, podcasting with Woodbine Space. It gives me great memories of like the last couple of years when we'd play poker there and I'd lose all my money to Angela and she'd laugh at me. Uh, that's yeah. that's like my, my closest association uh, with Woodbine. You played poker with Angela Nagel? Uh, Angela Davis, actually. <laughs> Angela Davis. You, you know, you wouldn't know it looking at her, but she's a hell of a poker player. <laughs> So let's start this conversation off uh, with everybody's little, we all got little opening statements. They don't have to be super formal. They can be impressions of the show, what you want to talk about. And then we can kind of open it up to a more general back and forth kind of convo. Sure. Sounds great. You want to go first, Imog? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weird thing about this, since we at Woodbine have been doing a couple of episodes, this is, I guess, the my my me and Matt's third third attempt at trying to figure out what what the hell's going on in in the Adam Curtis stuff. I sort of looking back on things I've written before. I spent I spent so much time reacting to a bunch of stupid Twitter things about Adam Curtis that I haven't really asked myself like what I think about the film, rather than you know what I think about dumb th- dumb things that people have said mm. about. The film mm-hmm. um, um i actually <laughs> on reflection after defending it for quite a while i actually don't don't like it very much which is very surprising it's just what? that you know just uh, yeah no t- <laughs> twitter fight i think twitter fights are fun to have especially when they're not happening on twitter um so yeah anyway just as an overview as an overview of what i think the film's doing um he says he's giving this like emotional history of power and politics in the 20th century um very good question what the hell an emotional history is and whether it's an excuse for bad journalism and bad historical analysis i think that's something that's going to come up again and again as we talk about it um i mean a lot of you are veterans of like the new york art space and you know saying that you're doing something artistic is like nine times out of ten a basically get out of jail free card for being lazy Mm. um right um i see jamie nodding along i'm sure the rest of you have had similar experiences of wasted evenings where some guy you know disguises his like self-indulgence under the you know so there Mm. is all yeah exactly (laughs) exactly and there is going to be there's going to be a little bit of that um i think I think the main, as I say, his main focus is, you know, this thing he calls political power. He doesn't really explain, he doesn't have like any specific theory about what that is. Um, He's interested in like conflicts over power, but very specific kinds of conflicts, these like ideological conflicts, right? Conflicts between like different ideas people have about how, you know, human life should be lived, different like ethical and philosophical ideas. Um, These ideas aren't necessarily like had necessarily by individual people. They can sometimes be like embodied in technologies, Um, but he's definitely not interested in like any old type of political conflict. He's definitely interested in like ideological conflict which has like important intellectual stakes of some kind and crucially like for him always these conflicts are like filtered through the desires of individual people and groups right so for him it's like really important somehow that like these ideological conflicts aren't like academic debates right it's kind of like you know they always come through the prism of like extremely specific kind of emotional baggage that the actors have at the time 
right? So that's like, that's his topic, kind of. That's kind of, I think, what the emotional history element is supposed to be. A little bit about how he wants to approach, you know, the history of power in the 20th century, right? Like, um, he has this idea, which is actually like really common on the left, which, uh, you know, or at least common in, I guess, some sections of the new left, which is to like use individual stories and, and like fragments of individual experience as kind of models of like broader themes in society at any given time, right? Like, you know, this and and he thinks. I mean, part of the reason I think he wants to do this is he thinks like you know, I roll. This is reflective of the fragmented nature of experience and late capitalism or whatever, you know. And there's something slightly there's something slightly I think uh, dishonest about about like that about uh, that kind of justification. Partly because you know that doesn't completely absolve you of the need to have this broader broader theory, but it's nonetheless like a pretty common kind of thing that a bunch of like postmodern writers try to do. It's, you know, uh, Adorno and Marcuse and a bunch of people have had this kind of thought that like the way to think about politics and late capitalism is to do this kind of fragment thing, right? And I see Curtis as very much trying to do that, right? So he tells this story of like the life trajectory of these specific individual people, and he takes the life trajectory of these people to have this like broader resonance. Right. Um, and it's that method which makes this like much more art PC than traditional than like a traditional like uh, sort of social theory or like historical analysis or something, because like a lot depends on whether you think like the vibes of the individual people tell you something interesting. Right. I, I kept coming back to the word vibe. Vibe is very important to Adam Curtis. So so so. And obviously, the extent to which you vibe, you know, whether you catch the vibe isn't, you know, it's not going to be an objective thing. It's going to depend a lot on your personal response and so on. Um, so, as I say, I, I voice some kind of skepticism about like, um, oh, this is art to that line of defense. But I think well, there's also something to that. I think there is an element to the way Curtis wants to go about things that that is kind of open ended and does depend on you know, how you respond to the stories he's telling you. The last thing I want to say, I don't want to go on for too long, um, is that uh, I don't, you know, he, Curtis, I think, has a broad historical story, but it's, like, incredibly banal for, like, people who have been in left circles, right? Like, you know, oh, there were all of these old forms of power, the British Empire, American capitalism, China. People rebelled against them in the 60s. There was disillusionment in the 70s because those rebellions failed. You know, neoliberalism mutated to co-opt the 60s rebellion. And, you know, neoliberalism isn't a sustainable... Sorry, I'm calling it neoliberalism. He calls it like 50 million different things. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes just the new power or whatever. <laughs> you know, we can... Another thing we can get to is like Curtis buzzwords, right? Um, and of course, neoliberalism turns out not to be a surprise, surprise, turns out not to be a sustainable like framework for people to find meaning in their lives. And so like bad, shitty nationalism like arises as a response to that, among other things like so this I take to be like the super broad story that he's telling across these films. Um, I think this is like when you just kind of look at the details of the points, it's, I think I, I'm going to stand by my assessment of like relatively banal, like um, even if you go through the points in detail, like, wow, you know, people use, you know, drugs to stabilize their emotions and feelings of alienation. This had never occurred to me, you know, wow, the rise of big finance, uh, you know, 
prevents governments from politically controlling, you know, the, from exerting control over policies and stuff. You know, wow, this is, you know, behind every sort of detailed Adam Curtis point, there are like five verso books which tell the story like much better. Right. So I think the historical story is like pretty uninteresting. I think I, all I would want to defend him on that score is that, like, I think people sometimes miss just how banal the points he's making are and want to find some kind of deeper significance. And so they take him to be doing conspiracy theory stuff. But, yeah, I think that's about that's all I'll say just as a preparatory thing. Wow, that's all that's all very good. And I was afraid that everyone but me was going to like it. And I was just going to be like feeling like maybe I was too dumb to understand it or something. But, um, you know, I'm starting to feel more and more confident that I am not. <laughs> and that my take is correct. A so, little thank you. Is good. Sorry, I, I think I went for too long, but I hope that was helpful to people. Oh, that's does, that, does anyone want to... Um, that was yeah, that was excellent. Uh, does anyone want to like grab onto one of those threads or you want to keep on saying what whatever you guys have uh, yeah, prepared I, to say? Um, yeah, just towards the end, you mentioned the conspiracy theory label that sometimes gets put on him. Uh, and it's interesting that he addresses that right at the beginning of episode, not at the beginning, but in episode one, he he really tries to uh, delineate. Uh, what he's doing and how that's different than a conspiracy theory and really kind of polemicizes conspiratorial thinking throughout the series, which I thought it was, was really good. Um, and that's something I've seen a lot of pushback against him. So it's interesting, like in, in previous films, he's, he gets pushed back because he's perceived as like an Alex Jones type uh, because he'll, he'll like bring up this character of Edward Bernays, for example. And, uh, in uh, which one's that? Uh, Our uh, century of self. Century of the self, and f- some people will watch that and get this implication that he's saying that Edward Bernays like orchestrated uh, the the hyper normalized integrated spectacle or whatever. Um, but this is, I think, a very uncharitable viewing of Adam Curtis, and I think even in this series, there are a lot of moments where there are things that I slightly disagree with, or would argue with, or would ask for more nuance on, or say well, why are you bringing up this narrative of like a British couple getting a divorce? Like this is not like it. No one, like no one would argue that that divorce had like historical resonance or, you know, changed the world. Um, but he brings up these stories to make a point about what's going on and, and, and he can bring them up allegorically, not he can even, I'll even let him, you know, kind of fudge the details of those things if it's in the broader service of making this narrative. So this is a formalistic aspect of Adam Kurtz that I really like, you know, along with the pop music and, uh, and new wave and, and uh, like extended um, clips from the BBC archives. I think this is a, a very good thing that he does. It reminds me of, people say it reminds them of Alex Jones, like sure, maybe Alex Jones ripped him off. Uh, maybe there is something similar going on in the, in the narrative form, but it, to, to me, it reminds me of Chris Marker, who is a, a really great communist filmmaker of the 60s and 70s. Just to, to kind of quickly outline what I think he's doing here and why I think this is really one of his better works, although I, I am a fan of his. He's looking at um, the way, uh, I, I think like the his, his use of the miners in, in episode maybe two and three, uh, the way the miners kind of reach this equilibrium with capital in the mining towns was oh, spoiler uh, alert uh, 
Well, it's episode two and three. It's not not the latest. It's, it's interesting that the miners don't come up again. It seems like that they are going to be like the hero of the movie that he says that he wants them to come back. And interestingly, he doesn't. But he he uses them as the example of like collective action and a collective threat. Like a a they are a class, but they're also a group of people who are, for example, have a lot of access to dynamite and can like shut down all the roads and the rail cars in their area very easily. So capital kind of has to um, be nice to them or let them uh, try try to make things steadily better for them in some way so that they don't revolt and and so they keep working. And from there, um, both from their, you know, their collective struggles to get to that point, uh, he looks at how they've lost that power and as an, as a metaphor for how, you know, the working class generally decomposed in the, the second half of the 20th century. And part of that for the miners was petrocapitalism, like moving, uh, moving away from coal and towards oil and uh, leading to like immense power of the, of the, of the Saudi kingdom, for example. Um, and then from there, you know, suddenly there's no class power anymore. Uh, so politicians, um, even ones who like Adam Curtis is like somewhat sympathetic to like Bill Clinton, I guess, like he implies that Bill Clinton would be like a working class politician uh, were it not for the decline of working class power. He had to, like the Clintonites, Blair, the EU, Yeltsin, they just have to side with international finance and with, uh, w- with big capital instead of relying on the people to fight for them if they want to side with the people. Um, so mm. this leads to the rise of these technocratic liberal regimes that he says can only strive for stability in the moment but have nothing to say about the past or the future. So out of that lack of narrative of, of like a historical consciousness and uh, like a, a dream of like a better life in the future or a new way of living, get the return of nationalism. And so in the latter half of the series, he does a great job of exposing how nationalism is a series of myths. So this is something that I, I really haven't seen done this well in any kind of documentary before, like exposing nationalism as a myth is not something you see well even done in essay form. You know, this is a an important point to make, and I'm really glad that he made it. But he also shows how through the uh, collectivity implied in the imaginary of nationalism or uh, even of communism, uh, th- there becomes these, these rising reactionary threats. And, and that's where the national Bolsheviks and Edward Lomonov come in. Um, there's an interesting scene where he's showing them marching and he, and he's quick to point out that these are, this is like, Lomonov is really going back to the heart of what made fascism powerful, which is that he was getting people together around this shared idea with these shared goals. And he, and like, uh, not, and so I think he, he uses that as an example because he sees this as like a, a real or genuine fascism. Like it's true to its history as opposed to these other kinds of fascism or, you know, like Trumpism or Brexit or even Islamism to some extent, like, uh, like, uh, uh, referencing ISIS and Al Qaeda. He sees those as being kind of like perverted by like the new individualism, uh, of the last 50 years. But he sees like the national Bolshevism as like a true, like fascist thing that's reemerged from the past. And some people have misread that as sympathetic. It's not, he's using that as an example of like how bad things can go um, unless there's something to counter it. 
And his real point is that in order to fight fascism, we have to rediscover the power of collective action to challenge power. So we can't just challenge power individually. We can't be apolitical and just do, you know, live aid and Doctors Without Borders and, and humanitarianism. Um, there has to be a, a political position enacted through collective action. Uh, and without that, without if you just leave liberalism to take up the, the tasks of progressivism or, or uh, you know, managing society, you're going to get fascism. And I agree with that. This is like, a, you know, this is a position that, it, yeah, you're right. It might sound very simple to us. And when he, when he goes over, like in the last episode, how like uh, liberals in the United States and in, in England are have to make these conspiracy theories about how Putin's behind everything or Cambridge Analytica or Bannon. They're just refusing to see what's actually going on. And there's actually something material happening. And it's this is the fault of liberalism. Like, obviously, we all know that. We all listen to podcasts. You know, this gets said like every week. <laughs> but this is like a the, the idea of blaming liberalism as the origin of fascism's reemergence is, is a point that I don't see talked about too much. And so I really like that Adam Kurtz has put, put these points in there in a way that's, you know, uh, entertaining and popular um, to to spread this information. So I think it's good propaganda and I really like kind of the this central dichotomy that he builds up in the last two episodes which I think is he makes so clear which I really like um, this dichotomy between a computerized psychologized cybernetic hypercapitalism where anyone can say and think what they want but it doesn't matter or this unforeseeable future built from an emerging confidence that human consciousness and collective action is stronger than the machine. Uh, and remarkably, Curtis is certain the second future will win out because the hollow myths and decaying realities of the current order have nothing to offer and no one really believes in them. And that's true for the United States. It's true for Russia. It's true for China. And so basically, I think what he's pointing to is an essential truth that all communists and all revolutionaries have to believe and have to keep saying, which is that the way things are now is not the way things have always been. And it's not the way things are going to be in the future. And the future people are going to think and live differently. And that's basically all you need to be a communist, you know? Just to, just to interject, I, I was wondering whether anyone cringed in the last film when the, he, he let the camera linger on, I don't know if it's the women's march or like some anti-Trump march, like in the middle of all this like very interesting ideological stuff, all you heard was like, we reject the president-elect. And I was like, oh, shit. Yes, yeah, so I did so, cringe at, <laughs> at that moment. That of the yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. maybe I'll go next because sure. I'm glad that... Uh, I like I'm glad you got that out of it, Andy. I can see how that could be true. And I do agree that you often uh, have to fight to get people, especially liberals, to understand the way that fascism emerges from liberalism and the way that it's doing it right now. Right. Because they think it's just racism, which is uh you know, certainly racism is a big part of it, but where did the racism come from? Why did it erupt in this way at this particular moment in time and not a different moment in time? Um, so, yeah, that is important. Uh, I don't think I got the same thing out of it, though, that you and maybe others did quite like it starts with that quote from David Graeber, right, about how the world was made a certain way and could be made differently. But the message I largely took from it was pretty much things are fucked 
and anyone who has ever tried to unfuck them has only made it worse. Uh, whether you're talking about the USSR or China, it, it doesn't really look at the material factors and the reasons why the, the failures of the USSR and the Chinese revolution happened. Doesn't talk about the impact of Western imperialism so much, the impact of the world market and, you know, the continued existence of capitalism. What about the value form, I say? Uh, like, it seems a little bit idealist throughout and less materialist than I might like it to be as as a Marxist, um, right? Like, maybe it's not great man theory of history, but maybe it's more like crazy bitch theory, you know, when... Um, <laughs> the cultural revolution happened because Mao's wife was uh she was a crazy bitch folks but it seems like there's more than one example of these things being driven by ideas more and and it was Mao's idea it was an idea on the part of a guy uh, rather than you know these underlying material forces that we place our emphasis on as you know as Marxists as students of the immortal science um but where was I going with this? Yeah, um, it, I, I also think he's kind of quick to overlay his own thesis on stuff. Like um, we want to, I want to talk about the trans woman Julie's story. He talks about this uh, this trans woman in England who's trying really hard to get uh, gender affirming care from the NHS, and they're just making her jump through all these fucking hoops. And finally, she goes out and gets it on her own. But um, they fuck it up and the NHS doesn't know how to help her when she's got complications and she winds up being really, uh, really injured and alone by the end of this. And, and his his overlay on it is like, Julie thought she could change the world by fighting to become who you are. But at the end, it's like, uh, uh honey, sorry. Like, yeah, uh, but there's a uh, crucial individualism point. can only take you so far. No, 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 no. The, the point he was making is that she did challenge power. But she challenged it alone. And since she had to go it alone, there was only so far she could go. Now, he, there was an, a layup he could have done where he said today there's this huge trans movement and that they, they've been able to uh, make sure that a lot of like thousands of women like Julie are able to get are, are do. Are, I mean, they're still struggling. Like the stuff that Julie went through is still exists today. But there's so much solidarity around gender affirmation and, uh, and, and struggles of trans people in general, that it's no longer just one person in isolation. So I, I agree, he, that point should have come back, but it's, it's not fair to say that that was just a neoliberal failure. That's All not right. the point he fair, was making. Fair, fair enough. Uh, I'm also like maybe a little bit biased after finding out that he's got ties to um, like those fucking reactionary trots over at Spiked oh, <laughs> that I'm, we I'm talked gonna, about. We talked in, about uh, that in, episode. in a different episode. But like, yeah, I don't know. 93. I just I just kind of feel like a lot of this stuff. Uh, I didn't really come to a revolutionary conclusion from it. I kind of came from to a, a, like sort of an anti-communist conclusion. Like things are fucked. Anyone who's ever tried to unfuck them via mass action or believing believing in something other than the world that we have now has only made it worse. Like I could see this appealing to like Joe Rogan fans who are kind of like fuck the left, fuck the right. Politics are fucked. They're stupid. But I I want to feel like I'm being thoughtful about it. 
But that's really that's really interesting because he he says I think you're right. Part of what he part of what he says is that. But he also says the people who try to get away from politics, uh, like that's not a route. That's not a route out either, right? So all of these social media, like his analysis of neoliberalism, as you say, it's like ideological and ideas driven. It's like he thinks neoliberalism is essentially an expression of that kind of impulse, right? Like so you build social media technologies, you build stable systems, so that all this messy, unruly, crazy bitch politics shit doesn't happen again right and so you know we want to put a lid on this and he thinks that's a dead end as well so you you just kind of have to keep doing the fucked up thing i I mean that's i think the i mean i think the things with people like julie or lots of the various characters is like he has this novelistic approach where he's pinpointing or curating this kind of collage of these tragic figures throughout history like tupac or whatever and, you know, they might fail, but there's something illustrative in the kind of forms of innovation that they were trying to do and how they saw the world and how they tried to create some kind of response to it. And they're kind of vulnerable and isolated alone and, you know, are killed in Las Vegas or whatever. But I think there's this kind of this dynamic where, you know, he, he's interested in these sort of avant-garde, creative, you know, lonely, isolated people that have this artistic kind of sensibility that then are crushed or defeated by the the forces of the old power or whatever they might be. And I think, you know, or that people have all these contradictions or kind of diversions like Michael X or something. So people who might start out kind of fairly idealistic are then kind of corrupted or kind of uh, diverted from their kind of mission or something. And there's this tragic aspect in this sort of novelistic framework that he's using, you know, that we see the, or a Fini Shakur, you know, be, you know, supposedly becomes addicted to crack later on after the failure of the kind of civil rights movement, you know, in the, in the eighties or something. Um, But I think, you know, there's a kind of sympathy or, you know, empathy within him in relating to these people and kind of presenting them not as kind of um, wrong, but just, you know, through through the kind of overwhelming force of kind of history or power or something, they were unfortunately or whatever, unable to maintain some kind of pure political movement or something. I mean, even Limonov himself, you know, there, there are these sympathies with these trajectories of being like a Soviet dissident artist, being in New York, you know, coming back to a post-Soviet Russia, um, and, and trying to kind of make sense of, of these various historical progressions that are not easy to make sense of. And, you know, people get caught up in these various strands. But I don't know that, I mean, even Zheng Qing, you know, like, I think, you know, what Jamie's saying, you know, she's, I think he's accusing her of helping kind of stir up through hysteria the kind of fervor of the youth-based cultural revolution, you know, the Red Guards, through these operas and films or whatever, these retellings or something. But I think there is some kind of sympathy there. And, you know, the question about, the question really is about, you know, does Curtis, you know, where does Curtis beliefs or sympathies lie? And to what extent, you know, he's very kind of non-ideological in a certain way, and he's certainly non-dogmatic. And, you know, whether or not that's a critique of his project or not, you know, there's something interesting about that or refreshing, you know, that he doesn't have 
a clear theory of history or clear overarching narrative um, of, of what exactly happened. And in some way, that's, there's, there's something more honest of him leaning into that kind of confusion that he clearly has and that we have as viewers mirroring the confusion of sort of scrolling through Twitter, Instagram or the news or something and being, you know, you know, confronted with 12 different stories that have nothing to do with each other. You know, that's that's Twitter, just as it is, you know, Adam Curtis's films, you know, this divorce as you're scrolling, you know, you see, you know, Texas, you know, the whatever ice storms, then there's a shooting, you know, then there's a UFC match last night, you know, then, you know, someone posts a selfie, you know, and we have to kind of process all of these things in 2021 or something while we're kind of home quarantined or whatever. I mean, that kind of confusion and inability to process history as it's happening or to process what exactly happened in the 20th century. In some ways, there's something generous and refreshing that he does not offer a clear um, explanation about what all this means or what all this is pointing towards or something. I mean, I kind of like that it's not like a, a standard democratic socialist where it says like, okay, we just need to build unions now. And that will kind of resolve all the contradictions that he laid out because I don't really believe that's the case or something. So it's like the fact that he opens up presenting all this stuff is interesting to me. And I think that's part of, you know, some of the, the power of his project. No, man, it should have ended. The whole story should have ended at like the new school reading groups of 2010, 2011. Yeah, that's, that's what, you know, everything was leading up to the Bernie campaign. That's that's what it should have been. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't like it if that were the answer. But as we know, the communists are the adults in the room. So I would have liked it more if that was the thesis. Uh, well, but like, what was I going to say? Oh, I it, it, I don't know. You kind of made it sound like the wire. Like, it just does a good job describing all the problems. But when it comes time to offer solutions, it's like, I don't know, kind of a cop out. Feels like kind of a cop out to me. I don't know. Uh, but and, and like mirroring this kind of like capitalist realism we're all living in where every single historical event uh, from like, I don't know, like Marilyn Monroe on the cover of Playboy to like something that the Pope did to like, you know, the Russian Revolution. It's all like flattened into these. But we didn't uh, start the fire school of history. Bite sized morsels. Uh, I feel like it yeah, just ignores the of, last like, hour of the last culture that are just like presented in a sort of a flat an equal way for you to just like take in passively as, as a stream. And like, I don't know, I, I like things that are a little more clear because I think the immortal science has given us a very clear lens in order to, to make sense of the things that happen and not just say, Oh, isn't that all that curious? And, you know, to point in a direction ultimately uh, in a conclusion, which is, you know, we got to fucking get together and do the thing. We got to do the rev. But um, Sean, you haven't spoken very much yet. What do you think about all this? Yeah, I um, my little uh, summation was going to touch on exactly that. Um, you know, if we wanted a materialist account of the great proletarian cultural revolution, you know, we'd have to start on the contradictions of uh, Chinese political economy and international politi political economy in the late 40s and into the 50s and the 60s. We have to talk about the built up uh, industry, state industry in Manchuria versus the lack of productivity in agriculture in the countryside. 
We'd have to talk about the changing class composition where a whole new generation is rising uh, that weren't attached to the revolution, that were looking for the possibility of communism in the future. We'd have to talk about um, the reliance of the Chinese in this, whether you call it state capitalist or a non-mode of production. We'd have to talk about the use of um, voluntarism you know, in like an economic and political sense to try to break through the material constraints that existed at the time. But this, um, this piece of this work, Adam Curtis's work, is not that, right? He's not telling that story. And I think that my defense of it is that we, we, don't, we, we can't expect him to tell the story that we want him to tell. And I think the story that he does tell is, is pretty important because he's getting at not the objective conditions, right, of the last 50, 60, 70 years, Instead, he's looking at the formation of subjectivities, right? The, there is a subject, subjective aspect to this late capitalist world that we live in, and this is what his topic is. Like, so there are critiques that we can make of his project, and certainly the historicity. For example, the direct lines that he points between, as we were saying, Jiang Qing, Mao's wife, and the proletarian revolution, or, as he does later on, complexity theory, say, and Brexit, right? He, he, he makes it as though, it, it could seem as though these theories are driving these world events. Uh, at the same time, Curtis's focus is on these sort of vague populist words that we wouldn't use, like corruption or elites, or, of course, the famous dark forces that we know so much about. And he uses, he relies on this sort of psychosocial phenomena, these social psychosocial phenomena to explain these world events and this uh, movement of history. Uh, but let's not confuse ourselves uh, about who Curtis is and what the story that can't get you out of my head is trying to tell. He is foremost an interpreter of what we've called on this show before the triple crisis or the impasse, at least from a subjective standpoint. You know, there's this great rot at the center of bourgeois society and one that determines politics and social life and has for about 50 years now. We can call it neoliberal ideology, even if uh, Adam Curtis won't. So, you know, the way that Curtis goes about goes about explaining the world in this is through a sort of left um, Freudo-Weberianism, right? It's not Marxism. What? It's like it's a left populist Freudian Weberian analysis, right? It's, it's this populist analysis of what Weber called the iron cage of institutions that we've built for ourselves alongside and, and within this strange mass psychology of this particular era. Mainly, as he talks about, the fear and dependency of, and hopelessness that punctuates both private and social life in the advanced capitalist world. So Curtis's goal is to find a compelling narrative for why we all feel like shit <laughs> and why it seems like nothing can be done about it. So it's not, the can't get you out of my head is not a substitute for materialist critique, but it can sit alongside it, you know, with some exceptions there you can, you can, you know, point out particular uh, aspects of it that are wrong, but it can sit alongside materialist critique as an intervention into the contemporary formation of political social structures and what kind of subjectivities, whether they're individual or collective, these sorts of structures create. So Curtis, unlike a lot of liberal commentators, has a crisis theory, it seems. And while he is a, it's a psychosocial one, it, un, and it unfolds on this lower plane of abstraction, right? Uh, than political economy or historical materialism, but that's ultimately okay. So on to the topic of... Uh, Wait, yeah. like how is that different than the liberal conception of crisis theory, which is basically like people had some bad ideas and they weren't feeling so good and they did a racism. 
Because the crisis happens, all of these uh, processes unfold into the 1960s and the 1970s, and they're not simply idealist. Like you have the rise of finance, and maybe he puts too much emphasis on finance, but you know, finance coming in, also the the denuding of modern life of politics and political change. This is all a crisis on this different level of abstraction on the level of finance as opposed to industry, which is a real thing. And on the level of the social or psychological as opposed to the material, but that's okay. You but know, also, also the way class composition changes with like different modes of production, like the shift from coal to oil. Right. So th- th- you, there's a lot of materialism to be found. Yeah. He just doesn't foreground the materialism because it's not his question. Right. And Weber as, as well, this is kind of Weber's method too. So like Weber's not like not a Marxist, but he, He's not not a Marxist. He's not not a Marxist. Right. Like Foucault is the same thing. Foucault's asking far different questions than Marx's, and you could throw Foucault completely out the window because he's not a Marxist. Or you can think about the ways, just like we're doing with uh, Curtis right now, where like what he says about the world and history and politics, you can integrate that into our analysis if you find it compelling, and if you don't, that's fine. So to bring up the elephant in the room here, as we discussed and Jamie mentioned on episode 93 of the Antifada, how Trotsky got spiked, (laughs) some of Curtis's uh, ideas uh, come from, I don't think they're the same, but they come from the same genus as the Revolutionary Communist Party slash Living Marxism and now Spiked Magazine. And we should say for some background for those who don't know what it is, which is basically um, it started out as, I guess, trots, communists and somehow morphed into this like really dumb, reactionary, cultural bullshit magazine. It's like it's like the move that a lot of trots have made this post Trotsky and neoconservatism. They just did that. The, The RCP spiked people did that instead of with international policy, like we saw in the United States with the neocons in government they did it instead with like civil civil liberties issues and with cultural issues and shit like that so they took a the neoconservative conservative uh turn outside of yeah. out of trotskyism the the important takeaway from that episode is that um it, they are staying faithful to trotsky's last vision which is to say um after he had an ice pick in his head <laughs> <laughs> that's right but, so you know i i don't I I, re- I read that article and I I don't th- I don't think it's fair to say like he comes from that tradition like I don't think he was part of that party. There was Seems some like overlap. he knows them, but yeah. he also knows David Graeber. So I you know why don't we call him an anarchist? Like I, I just don't I don't think like labeling him that way is fair. But I, I was gonna say yeah. what I was gonna say exactly next is we know that they did some conferences together and they know, we know that they've interacted like Frank Ferretti and Adam Curtis in the past. But we can't simply tar him by guilt by association, right? Because that's just not a logical way to argue things. The truth is, honestly, that there is something to the argument, and I'm giving you know a little credit to the devil here. There's something to the argument that the progressive left has been recuperated into a neoliberal technocracy that does abhor democracy. And right now I'm talking about these things that Curtis and also presumably Frank Ferretti and the spiked people believed 20 years ago when they were kind of working together, right? It is certainly true that the neoliberal technocracy abhors democracy and that the progressive left often gets recuperated into that. It's often true, too, that the progressive left traffics in this sort of victim uh, narrative that is very disempowering and actually hurts uh, the movement was actually changing the world. And also that uh, progressives look to petty tyrants in government or in big business in order to check any mass initiative that threatens the world order. But we don't have to become Brandon O'Neill 
like the big that fucking dipshit you see all the time in the spectator mm -hmm. on bbc and write missives about fossil fuel and hysterical attacks on cancel culture and attacks on trans people we can simply accept that there is a ruling class project to make us feel that change is impossible and that a mass psychology of fear and weakness necessarily follows from the absurdity, hopelessness, and cruelty of modern life, right? So if we, if we give these ideas the best glean that we possibly can, there's some truth to them. And to the extent that uh, Adam Curtis believes these things, I think that, that he's correct in that. So we can't just throw Curtis out and we can't just tar him by association. But again, none of this is to say that, say, Adam Curtis's take on the great proletarian cultural revolution is adequate for an understanding of this period in Chinese history or indeed the history of the world itself. But ultimately my point is that that's not his point and that's fine. I think this was a compelling intervention because it's ultimately a work of artistic propaganda for middle brow BBC viewers and leftish Twitter commentators. And it's a success on that account for all the reasons I think Andy talked about and, and for its artistic vision too, because I simply love to watch BBC B-roll with Brian Eno over it. That's just me. I mean, it worked on me. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, the, his taste in music is so good. It definitely like <laughs> fucks me up. So I land like somewhere in the middle. I think it's really good for what it is. I, I think that we shouldn't expect Curtis to be doing too much or he wouldn't be himself. And we can't, you know, all, a lot of these critiques around conspiracism or about his connections with, you know, dodgy groups in the past. I think we need to look at him for what he is and look at the project for what it is. And I think overall, it's a great intervention right now. And I think of all of his works, it's the most coherent for the reasons that Andy was talking about, where at the end, it's, it's this sense that there has to be collective action taken and that the where we've been going is not going to get us anywhere. And this impasse that we're in right now, which I've talked about on the show before, this political impasse where there's no ideas, where communists are the adults in the room, but we don't have a hearing generally, right? I think that his, um, his film here, this series, helps to explain the, the psychology of that impasse and the reason why it seems as though we can't even see a future because uh, ultimately, like, everything is so fucked and we're so weak but, and we're so scared. But, like, how can that be your takeaway when every time people have tried to take collective action, uh, it has resulted in utter and abject failure, whether we're talking about the USSR or China, which he chooses to focus on in this series. I don't think he, he didn't say that the Soviet Union was a failure. In fact, he used that um, Irish woman, I forgot her name, living in New Ethel York. Bull. Ethel Bull. to like counterplay. I think that's what he does a lot in the first episode is try to counterplay like uh, individualism with collective collectivity on the other hand and talk about how these two are interconnected. They're not actually separate. Right. That in one place, individualism, you know, it's an interaction. It's a dialectic between the two. I don't know. Maybe Andy nodded. Maybe he can pick up on that. But I don't think that he was condemning the Soviet Union for what it was, per se, but only talking about the kind of uh, dangers of collectivism and individualism going too far, maybe. I mean, uh, sorry, Andy, go ahead if you want to. Well, the, the Cultural Revolution was kind of like the most clear slash complex example because he seems sympathetic to the uh the revolutionary concepts of mao of um like uh you know the, everybody working as like a total unit um that very marxist leninist militaristic maoism um which i'm not very sympathetic to but you know uh he he does at least and um when uh, when it comes to the Cultural Revolution, you see that fragment down into like different cadres with different micro tendencies all fighting one another, and the use of uh, Xinjiang there 
is a, a metaphor for how that great totality of, of Maoist struggle um, is reduced closer to the unit of one, which Ching Chang represents. Um, so so I, I think there's this kind of, uh, this metaphor of totality that comes from the workers' movement of the miners, you know, the proletarian revolution of Russia, the, uh, the you know, the revolution, Mao's revolution. The, this, well, like, the miners got fucked too, though. Like they, they were fucked did, by the dark they forces. They did a collective though. action, and then, uh, oh, whoops! Uh, capital is going to get its energy from Saudi oil now because the workers are not as united. Well, we can critique him for calling that strange dark forces. We can certainly critique Curtis for that, but he's saying that these strange dark forces, which we can choose to call capitalism, or we can choose to call like the value form or whatever it is, doesn't just destroy the miners, right? The miners were onto the right thing, but it ends up destroying every single attempt at trying to create some sort of collective political, not just block to like this, the, the power of these strange dark forces, but indeed like the, the ability for there to be collectivity in the first place. And he's yeah. also he's also pushing back on this idea that uh, the reason everything is so bad, the reason why people have lost all their power and, um, ha- uh, and, and democracy seems to be such a mess is because people are irrational and stupid and have like this thing in their brain that makes them not understand and act rationally. And the solution to that is technocratic, computerized, cybernetic capitalism. Uh, and in the at the end of the series, Adam Chris is very clear that he thinks that that's totally wrong. And actually, um, people are able to think and be conscious and act together. Uh, and that is actually stronger. That is much stronger than the the computerized alternative. Uh, so I think like it's, it's inarguable that like the enemy, the class enemy, uh, has won up until this point in history. Um, yeah. like, I don't know what, what you could point to, to say that there's a place where that's not true. Um, and well, our, our tanky friends will disagree with you on that, but yeah, but on. this is a great point that Curtis makes too, is that if we're going to hold up Putin or, uh, or, 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 um, president G like these are deeply corrupt, crumbling countries filled with crisis and ideological, you know, ideological decay and misery and hyper-capitalism. So if we're against capitalism, then. Those aren't really alternatives. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't I don't think he's using the USSR or the PRC as an example of collective action. I mean, I think his his sense of collective action that he's interested or sympathetic to is at a smaller scale than these you know century long national projects. But I think, you know, he's closer to I mean, his main interests, I think, through most of these series is is power and what power is you know, what it was, how, how does, you know, historical or change relate to an understanding of power. And, you know, all these individual or collective attempts are defeated or manipulated or mutated or distorted by power. But his project is to really think about, you know, what is power? And, and there's a, a kind of Foucauldian aspect in that where he's, he's bringing in, you know, what, what, what Sean called, you know, psychosocial, you know, sociology, political psychology, to kind of think through that beyond a kind of more orthodox Marxism or leftism where he's not saying, you know, power is the bourgeoisie. He never uses that term. He's not saying it's the capitalists. He's not a, you know, a, a vulgar anarchist where he's saying it's the state or the nation state form. He's a bit more 
opaque or slippery or something. But I think that's, again, you know, some one of the things that's more interesting or, or honest to thinking about power. And, you know, like, like Sean said, also thinking about, we called the formation of subjectivities, you know, Curtis is interested in, in individualism and what that means, you know, how it was produced, how it's experienced, how we understand what it is and, you know, potentially how it might be overcome. But, you know, to think about what that, what that is, 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 is deep and complex and has many different facets and, you know, individualism happened, you know, whether we like it or not, right. we we're all growing up in this condition that we were socialized in various ways and subjectivized in various ways that we kind of see and experience the world in our lives, you know, individually, you know, we're also deracinated or cut off from different communal collective forms of identification. And I think one of the things Curtis is interested in is, you know, he talks a lot about storytelling, uh, narrative, you know, having visions of a future uh, myth, you know, as Andy was saying. And part of what I think, for better or worse, his horizon of a way out is people or movements who are able to tell certain stories or have certain narratives or myths that can lead to various forms of identification or kind of belief. You know, he, Curtis is also interested in like belief, you know, what do we believe or do we believe in anything or, you know, often in, in China or Russia, you know, Russia, both during, you know, the seventies and eighties in the Soviet union or, or after the fact, he kind of talks about how people don't believe in anything, you know, they've lost belief in, in whatever. And, you know, that's something we can think about, you know, in the U S context as well. But, you know, what is belief and where does belief come from and how that relates to this process of, of individualization or depoliticization? And, you know, Curtis, as a kind of storyteller himself, is interested in, you know, what is this process or framework of narrative or storytelling or myth? And I think Jamie was right in a way to kind of relate to him to The Wire or David Simon, or maybe even like Charlie Brooker in Black Mirror or something. Yes. <laughs> and be, because, you know, uh, Curtis is using like nonfiction, we relate to him in maybe a different framework than we, you know, would connect him to those other guys or those other people. But it's not the worst kind of comparison to me. And we can critique that. But I think all three of them in various ways are offering interventions to hopefully help us see or understand the world as it appears to us. I don't know if it's necessarily up to them to tell us, you know, what to do with that or whatever, but it's like, I think, you know, there's something helpful about Curtis weaving all of these historical fragments together and presenting them somehow, because I think there's a way in which certain political tendencies don't engage with a lot of these things like Julie's story of kind of the trans, you know, experience in seventies England or, you know, Silicon Valley's kind of uh, trajectory from, you know, you know, utopian Bay Area 60s experience to, you know, surveillance kind of capital or something. I think, you know, it's difficult to hold all these things simultaneously um, and, and create a narrative out of it. And I think the people who too easily create a narrative out of it, for me, that leads to kind of skepticism because it's also it's often crude or vulgar or reductionist or something. So I think Curtis's practice or project is refreshing in that way, even if, you know, there are obviously all these limitations and frustrations and contradictions. 
I mean, Matt, just just a note on this, like, there is no vision of the future thing, right? Like, in some way, that's got to be, like, crazy for people on the left nowadays to hear, right? It's like, has the guy walked through Brooklyn? There are, like, people selling visions of the future every five minutes, right? There's, like, a, a deluge of fucking books and podcasts and articles and journals and PhD students who will, you know, give you five visions every day, you know? Um, so, but I mean, I think if you think through a little bit more, I think like there's a more sort of, there's an easier way to read, uh, there's a sort of more helpful way to read this vision thing, which is that like, of course, Curtis isn't denying or he shouldn't deny that people have beliefs about, you know, ind at an individual level about the way the future will, future will transpire. And they have beliefs about, you know, utopian futures and so on, right? The Kim Stanley Robinson book, which even fucking Ezra Klein is reading, you know, um, that's, uh, so, so that's, so if he's saying that, then he's an idiot, right? It's, and the BBC Middlebrow mainstream excuse isn't going to work because, you know, with the uh, Bernie movement and stuff, you know, um, you'd be crazy not to notice the just, you know, at a very bare basic level that people have views about how society should be run, right? But uh, he can't mean that, right? He, what he must mean is that um, people's various, like all of these beliefs and opinions are kind of fragmented and shut away in the world of social media and don't have, uh, you know, don't have any kind of political articulation in terms of like an enduring mass organization, which translates you know, a fucking Jacobin article into uh, into some kind of powerful, lasting institutional form which can challenge power. And once you read vision in that more materialist way, then I think the point begins to make more sense. There's a there's another interesting thing because we're talking about the ways, or at least I'm talking about the ways that this could be integrated into a Marxist analysis. But Adam Curtis does this thing, and you see it uh, in his discussion of Brexit, where he takes us from like the Opium War into this, uh, into this uh, backlash in the UK and the creation of this sort of middle, little England sort of narrative of this natural organic unity of England and then how that gets combined with Dominic Cummings' complexity theory that he gets where like sovereignty has to be brought back from these entities that are unaccountable to the people but in this sort of technocratic way or whatever. Like there's this thing that I notice all the time and I do it myself. I think we all do it. And it's, uh, it's really best, um, summarized in Luke 23, 34, uh, forgive them father for they know not what they do. Like Adam Curtis does the same thing that I do often as a Marxist, which is say that like the things that people do individually or collectively, even if they don't realize it, even if they're not conscious or cognizant of it are a, a, tr a true reflection of these sort of underlying uh, characteristics of the world, right? Like they might, people might not know that like Brexit is this sort of like return to like a, a, a nationalist sense that we need to have a sort of uh, industrial collective policy that brings us all together, similar to a way that it was in like the post-war era. But they, they might not know that consciously, but it is an expression of the structural reality of capitalist society, right? People might not be able to explain it, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. But there is something real under that. And in that sense, Curtis, I think, is, is, does think very structurally about why people do the things that they do and what that represents about the world. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I like on a very simple level, sorry, just to bring it back for a second to the wire comparison, like... Uh, I was frustrated with the wire in the end because it lays out the problems, does not have any, any ideas how to solve them. When in fact we know there is a solution and it's called proletarian 
communist revolution. And then when David Simon does start offering his uh, his views on how to fix it, it turns out he's a fucking shit lib. Right. And you didn't necessarily know that from looking at the way he has laid out the problems. I think he really plays it close to the vest in terms of what he actually believes. But like in a similar way, if you can watch this series and not know uh, Curtis's any 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 of Curtis's idea of the solutions, like if if he might be a shit lib, like if 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 shit libri has been left room for, then like I'm not sure how much value it has. Oh, what what value does any piece of like journalistic uh, intervention have really? Like when I mentioned that this is primarily for like middle brow BBC viewers, you know, and also like people on left Twitter. You know, like these are the people that are that are really engaging with this you see right now and the people for which it's for, like to what extent does any of this do anything? Like David Simon at the end of The Wire doesn't say, oh, go go do communism. And Adam Curtis doesn't at the end of this say. He kind of does though. Well, maybe. But, <laughs> and, but like, and he takes on he takes on the liberal, he, he but, takes on Blair, he takes on Clinton. Yeah, let me finish though. I, I would just say that like ultimately I think as communists, like we don't want, or we don't certainly need Adam Curtis or David Simon to tell us what's necessary that, that, that derives from their negative critique of society. Like that's what the working class is for. That's what we're for. Right. So we can still take that, that nugget of knowledge from the, from the negative critique that they're giving and, and use it to argue for communism. I'm sorry, Andy. Yeah. I just, I, I, I'm confused about how you could watch the last episode and think that he was a liberal. It's, it's like taking aim directly at the major liberal narratives of our time and, you know, critiquing them head on um, and all the allusions to the, the triumphs of the workers movement and of the, uh, the socialist states and, you know, explaining how they deformed, or, you know, it's, it's kind of like a typical some form of Trotskyist narrative. Right. So uh, I mean, Jamie might mean I mean, I'll let her speak for herself. But like, I think one thing I got from that was that like you mean liberal in the sense that like defeatism was called liberal. Right. Like before the 70s, where it's like even like the way, you know, revisionists were accused of like crypto liberalism because the sort of material effect of their ideas was to like disempower the workers movement. Right. Whatever their personal beliefs were, the thought was like, look, the effect of what you're doing is like to, you know, get sort of disempower on you know demotivate like emancipatory impulses so it doesn't matter what you're critiquing as long as you're not saying you know the right kind of thing about the about sort of historical progress you know the content of your ideas is by default liberal whatever it is you personally think maybe that's not the thought yeah i'd like these uh, okay so i will admit i did not quite finish the last episode uh I fell asleep half an hour into it. Uh, his voice makes me sleepy. Also, I ate a big dinner and drank a bunch of wine. So it's possible he brings it all together in the end in a way that I'm just ignorant about. But like, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I would I'm actually, not- if people are listening and they don't want to watch the whole thing because it is really, long, it's really uh, long, you could just watch the last hour and a half, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think oh, he does actually, been, that is a shame that he didn't watch it because I really nice think- nice to know that before I watched <laughs> Yeah. The rest of it. He does really bring it together. I was I was like disappointed in the first episode or two with all the Jin Chang stuff and all of the um, 
you know, the, these individual stories, I was like, where the fuck is he going with this? But then by like yeah, the second I wrote or third, literally in my notes, what's the point? Like during the first episode, <laughs> the, vo- just, the Voynich manuscripts. I thought this was going to be about maybe the worst one. I, mean, I thought like, by yeah. the, the episode six, we'd be decoding the Voynich manuscripts. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'd be the key to everything. I'm talking, I'm talking about a crazy bitch. Yeah. Sorry, like yes, everything, uh, everything I, I, I'm viewing everything through the lens of that Buck Cherry video now that we played on the twitch stream the other night it's so good well well just like uh you know marx begins at the elemental elementary particle you know within capitalism in the commodity itself you know this 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 surface level um instantiation of capitalist society so too does adam curtis explain <laughs> these strange dark forces from the elementary product of that society which are batshit crazy individuals doing crazy individualistic things it's like a form of a you know it's a progression of knowledge to get no, to the no. end and the theory is there when mal brought his wife back from exile to do the cultural revolution <laughs> he looked her right in the eyes he looked her right in the eyes and he said you're crazy, but I like the way you fuck me. <laughs> well, that sounds lovely. I mean, well, one thing on Limonov, by the way, I was I was hoping partly that when they got to Limonov in the 90s, like Mark Ames and Matt Taibbi would turn up. Oh, like, like two writers from the exile. <laughs> no, it really like gave me some Matt Taibbi vibes a little bit in parts, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's, I didn't watch the end of it. That's that surface level spiked magazine shit that people pick up on that I was talking about before. Cause Matt Taibbi is on that shit now too, yeah. you know, in some sense. And, like, um, you know, it's easy to get drowned in that and do like guilt by association or this is Taibbi ish or whatever. But I don't think that the point that's not, isn't his entire point anyways. And I think they're like nodding to some of the problematic aspects of society and culture is not inherently reactionary. In fact, it can be very helpful. I think uh, if he is uh, trying to take that path of like the Spike Taibbi anti-cancel culture stuff, he does a much better job because he understands that the, the failures of progressivism doesn't mean that we should oppose progressivism. It's that progressivism has its limits within the liberal order. And that the liberal order is what prevents people from living the way they want to live, from having a meaningful existence, um, from changing the world, from threatening power. Because uh, in the end, it, it only allows you to go so far as power isn't threatened. Like uh, a lot of, you know, for example, a lot of people are just reactionary towards trans struggles um, because they connect it with neoliberal progressivism. He's doing something a lot more dynamic here. Uh, and also, I want to mention a, l- a little bit to the uh, off to the side. So the, yeah, the last episode of Trash Future has Abigail Thorne on oh. um, uh, Philosophy Tube. She she mentions the process of now identifying as trans in the UK and how you have to go to some kind of council or board, and they they like make sure that you've been living uh, as a woman for a year and ask you like a lot of really ridiculous invasive questions and they just make it like super hard for you uh, because they don't trust you to self-identify. Um, so that's like, that was a really interesting thing to listen to while watching uh, after just having watched that episode. Uh, and I, you know, encourage everyone to, to listen to that because it is like really incredible, like how far uh, trans people have come and how things are still kind of the same. Yeah, I think one of the things Curtis is doing or interested in in the, you know, in his um, this genre or his project or practice and focusing on these individual characters or stories. And he doesn't kind of say it explicitly, but effectively, he's interested in kind of charisma 
and like these charismatic people throughout history. And often they have this kind of artistic or discursive or rhetorical dynamic where they have this innovative way of seeing the world or telling stories. And that's supposed to be some kind of framework through which they're attracting followers or believers or subscribers and sort of their ideas. And that would be some um, basis for collective action potentially. And, you know, we were talking earlier and Amog mentioned, you know, this idea that on the one hand we might say, you know, no one has any visions of the future where simultaneously there's, you know, hundreds, if not millions of visions of the future anywhere you look, especially on the internet and people's, you know, whatever social media feeds. I think the the dynamic or contradiction is people being able to believe in them, you know, them having believers at all. And, you know, you see certain people that are able to rise up above the, the chaff, you know, like Bernie or AOC or whoever you want to, you know, list in that in that framework. And effectively, they might you might see them or you might think of them in this Curtis dynamic as people whose stories were, were better packaged or better presented than other people. So it's not that people don't necessarily have these visions of the future, but it, it, it takes or requires certain people or certain stories or certain framings that are effective or believable or something. And I think Bernie, you know, was a, an interesting or good example of someone who's able to package together, you know, Debs, FDR and Martin Luther King or something like that into some new horizon or uh, of, of a vision of the future. And, and we see in which, you know, how the old power, as Curtis would say, or ghosts from the past or something come back to destroy Bernie and, you know, who, who those new figures or new, or new storytellers might be, you know, but similarly on the left, people talk about, you know, we need an organization or there's no organizations, you know, while simultaneously there's dozens of ridiculous organizations or, or there always were that people just didn't believe in. So it's not that the thing itself doesn't exist, but the belief doesn't exist. And I think, you know, as Curtis is saying, you know, whatever we might need, it's not that it doesn't exist, but there's not the kind of charisma behind certain individuals or movements that are attracting a satisfactory amount of people behind them to really have any potency to kind of challenge the old forms of power, whatever that might be or mean or something. And I think that's one of the, the contradictions we're in. It's not that these things don't exist, but the belief isn't there and the belief in it isn't, doesn't exist. And one of the things Curtis is struggling with basically is nihilism, whether or not he kind of names it explicitly, but this kind of dynamic where belief just isn't present or it's hard to access or something. I mean, and, uh, sorry, yeah. Matt, go ahead. I was no, going to no, say, no. I have, a, I, I want to frame, I want to frame uh, uh, basically what Matt said in a more materialist kind of lens, because I think like um, there's a certain, I think, I think Sean is probably right that a bunch of stuff that Curtis says can be reconciled with a more orthodox materialist analysis, but there is definitely a kind of vulgar materialist conception of like class subjectivity that like is rejected either explicitly or implicitly in these films, right? There's definitely like, it seems somehow strange at the end of all of Curtis's films to think that, oh, we just, you know, there are these prefabricated material demands that we just need to 
like PR to the right people and they will automatically mobilize. I mean, I think Curtis's view of like class formation or subjectivity is like, well, I, I mean, I don't want to say Curtis's view because who knows whether, whether he has a class analysis, but our view of like class subjectivity or class formation, um, I think one lesson from Curtis is that the mechanical materialist story sort of, you know, doesn't work or needs to be supplemented in some fashion. And we need to have some more complicated story about how we get from, you know, the class in itself to the class for itself, or, you know, how we get from, you know, sort of a structural condition to an activated political force or whatever. Um, I mean, this, I think, is just a materialist way of putting what Matt put by talking about belief or charisma or like the, you know, the becoming potent of ideas that are sort of ambiently present. I think I sort of, I want to, I want to say much the same thing. Um, I, I mean, I guess the last thing to add would be that uh, there is a kind of irrationalism in the way Curtis thinks about politics, um, which like deeply uh, runs against the grain of the immortal science, however it's construed, that like he does think that ideas kind of run amok and blend with these kinds of weird idiosyncratic individual desires, right? So like the point, uh, one of the points of the Jiang Qing story was that like, you know, in some sense, the crazy bitchiness wasn't subtractable from the cultural revolution in this weird way. That like, you know, I mean, this seems like very strange <laughs> as a materialist analysis, but I think this is something he genuinely does believe that like, you know, mass politics is this like very dangerous, unruly, hard to predict and control kind of force, but you kind of have to do it anyway. And I think that point is like, it's hard to think about because it's like, it, what do you do with that? But I think it's it's an, it's a part of his commitments that it's important to point out. I think the more productive direction to take that is is, is in like, a, you know, we need to have a more sophisticated story of class formation. Um, but I think I also wanted to say that like, you know, that might be a slightly more optimistic takeaway from uh, from Curtis's uh, from Curtis's probably more pessimistic view the, about how how rational a politics can ultimately be than, than I think I'm suggesting. Well, I think he recognizes that when you challenge power, especially collectively, when you have like a mass uh, uprising, for example, it causes chaos and you can't predict what's going to happen and things right. might get worse. And historically that's true, but he's making the case that we should do it anyway. And of course we should try to do it the best way that possible. So we don't, so things aren't worse because things are getting worse anyway. Um, and, but that's, you know, that's like nobody should. This is why I have a problem with, with people calling like revolution uh, the immortal science or something like that. You, no one knows what will happen. Uh, it could be a big failure. It could be it could lead to a global revolution. That's the nature of politics. That's the nature of political action. And he's taking that seriously in, uh, I think, a pretty uh, impressive way. That's. You know, it kind of reminds me of, like, a lot of his work reminds me of Society of the Spectacle, just in, like, articulated in a very populist form. And a big part of this is about fragmentation and about how we're taught to believe that everything is fragmented and we're just fragments looking at fragments and putting together a narrative. And and funnily enough, that's kind of what he's doing. That's kind of his, his mm, role as a documentarian. Yeah. Uh, but he's arguing that, actually, there is a totality and that we should strive towards something on that level instead of just accepting the fragmentation. 
I mean, Andy, I would direct you to a source closer to home, right? Like uh, your Twitch stream, right? This is a lot of this is straight out of Adorno. Um, you know, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, what you were doing with the dream journal stuff is maybe just, you know, maybe in a small way, just like the Adam Curtis thing. Adorno was a man who had a dream. He had a yeah, dream, exactly. of, he had a he dream had about dreams. having sex with a great Dane, folks. He just made out with the great Dane. Made out with it. I'm sorry. We learned Check that. Check this out. Yeah, Twitch.tv <laughs> slash the Antifada. This great. is the kind of uh, really good, smart content that you can yeah. find there. And this, this was a gr- it was a great pitch. Thanks for bringing that up. Sex dreams about <laughs> dogs. Every single day we talk about that. All right. So we're going to take a break and do a little bit more about Adam Curtis and Tupac Shakur. Uh, hologram Tupac Shakur and the Black Panthers and Red Army Faction and stuff. Um, but just remind the listeners where they can listen to the rest of your episodes about uh, the Adam Curtis series. So we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash woodbine. Our website's woodbine.nyc. You know, so far we recorded two other episodes about um, Adam Curtis and we'll continue to figure out what the hell it's all about. Yeah.